3: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: So I have a dream one night, and I don't remember anything else in the dream except that there was a kid on a skateboard, and he skated up to me, and he whispered in my ear, and he says, let's start a movement called Kenotype. And I was like, what? And I had never heard that word before.
0: You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Michaela Matthews Okome. So let's get started. Hey, hey, guys. Welcome. Welcome back to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Rochelle Porter. Let me tell you a little bit about Rochelle. Rochelle Porter, also known as the print queen, has never met a blank surface she didn't want to draw on. Her designs feature joyful bursts of color and classic motifs with a fresh modern twist, and she's designed everything from home decor items to clothing. Most recently, Rochelle debuted the Summertime Fine Collection, an eye-catching athleisure collection featuring size-inclusive sports bras, leggings, and crop tops designed to be worn in and out of the gym. Love them. After learning of the unethical labor practices of today's globalized fast fashion industry, though, Rochelle nearly abandoned the idea of becoming a designer. That is, until she figured out that style could also be sustainable. Combining her passion for patterns with her commitment to social responsibility, her lifestyle brand now specializes in responsibly made fashion and home decor. Rochelle's products have been sold in West Elm stores across the country, Facebook headquarters, and numerous pop-up boutiques. And in 2019, she received a Spoonflower Small Business Grant and was selected for Harlem's Fashion Rose Inaugural Designer's Retreat at Nike's New York headquarters. The brand has been featured in Essence Magazine, Madame Noir, Hello Beautiful, and a host of other media outlets. Cannot wait to chat today. Welcome to the guest chair, Rochelle. Hey, Michaela. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So this is a lot. You, I mean, I want to know about <laughs> every single aspect of this. So let's dive right in. First of all, I know you are a Guyanese-born, Brooklyn-bred designer. So I am. I want to know, growing up, did you always know you wanted to be a designer?
2: Uh. Yes and no. So, like you said, I come from a very traditional West Indian immigrant family. So, you know, you grow up, you go to school, you become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Um, and I was not inclined to any of those things. Um, you know, like you said in my bio, I never met a blank surface I didn't want to draw on. I drew on everything from as early as I could think of, <laughs> as early as I could hold a pen. Um, I would be super excited when my mom would buy pantyhose. Like, do you remember those pantyhose that used to come in the flat package? Yes. With the cardstock. From like Rite Aid to CVS. Yes. (laughs) So so I would get excited when my mom would buy those because she would take the cardstock out. And that was something I could draw on. Like, that's how obsessed I was. But um, coming from the background that I did, um, art was cool, but it wasn't really valued. So I never in a million years, thought of doing that as a career. What was your initial career path? (laughs) Ooh, how much time do we have? Okay, Okay, so I graduated from college in 1999, and I'm dating myself, but that year is significant. I was about a month out from graduation, and I had majored in English and history, again, much to the chagrin of my Guyanese parents. Right, right. (laughs) Um, But um, I had always been a writer. I had been, you know, a senior editor at newspapers at my college. I had an internship at a PR firm that was only like, you know, three people in the whole company. So as an intern, I had a ton of leeway and got a ton of experience. So, you know, I had some quote-unquote professional experience under my belt when I graduated. So I assumed I would work in, you know, publishing or academia, something where I can use my writing and communications background. Um, I was about a couple months out from graduation. I had interviewed for job after job after job, and, you know, nothing stuck. So um, at this point, I'm kind of paranoid, (laughs) Um, and one day I was watching this show on PBS called Tony Brown's Journal. I don't know if you remember that. No, I it's, don't. Yeah, it's a super old school show. I don't think it's still on, but it was um, this talk show style format hosted by this black man named Tony Brown. And he talked about black issues and black stuff. And he was very into economic empowerment. And he was talking about um what was, what's called the Millennium Bug or the Y2K Scare. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember that.
0: Uh, for yeah. the youngins, that was when, you know, in 99, before it was about to hit 2000, everyone thought the world was going to blow up because exactly. computers <laughs> weren't programmed for two. I don't even remember the, all of it, but it was just, it was y- big.
2: <laughs> yeah, so there was going to be, you know, widespread panic and mm-hmm. rioting in the streets, you know, once the year hit 2000. At least that's what everybody thought. So according to Tony Brown on this episode, he was like, if you learn this software programming language called COBOL, which was what all the mainframe banking software was programmed in, uh, you know, for banking, for government, for all these major industries, if you knew COBOL programming, you would be a king in this new post-Y2K society. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, it, it scared me, of course, but I was like, hmm, okay. Um, so fast forward a few days later, I go to the career service office in my college. And what do I see? A listing for a COBOL training program. And it's at a Fortune 10 company, a major investment bank in Manhattan. So I was like, yes, you know, this is a sign from the heavens. <laughs> this is for me. You know, so I end up applying for the job. I get the job and everybody is, you know, super proud of me, super happy. I buy a whole wardrobe of suits. Um, (laughs) You know, I got my cute apartment in Brooklyn and I'm just ready to start my, you know, 22 year old post-college life. Start the job. And I absolutely hate it. (laughs)
0: Like
2: it's awful. So you
0: were learning computer
2: programming at this investment bank. Yes. Okay. And I, I won't name names of any companies I worked at. Yeah, no, but, um, no problem. You, yeah. You've heard of it. No problem. But,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I absolutely hated it. It was just a wrong fit for me. Yes. But um, ended up being there for about a year and a half because at the time I felt trapped. I didn't know I could just leave because I had, you know, people had all these expectations of me that I had to fulfill. So I was like, okay, you know, my job sucks. But at least I can have some kind of creative outlet because, you know, I had always been creative. I would never have dared to call myself an artist. You know, that would just have been too presumptuous for me at the time. But I knew I needed to do something other than work. So, you know, kind of looked around and I found this class at FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, the Project Runway School. And it was a three day course, like intro to fashion design. So, went to the first class, and you know, it was pretty fun. It was cool. Went to the second class, and the instructor told us that, you know, to get our fashion produced, we'd have to create the designs and then send them off to China to get made. So, immediately, I'm thinking, okay, China, human rights violations, child labor, you know, exploitation, and like, I don't want to do any of that because at the time I was, I guess I was woke before woke was a thing. <laughs> you
0: know? I know. I'm like, I was, How did you
2: immediately make that connection um, at that time? So, that's a good question. So another significant thing about 1999 was um, the World Trade Organization protest that happened in Seattle that year that I just happened to be flipping through TV channels one day and I saw these protests, um, The IMF and the World Bank had kind of, you know, descended on Seattle to have this conference. And there were all these staged protests, these like grungy looking white guys, you know, were getting arrested. And because they were protesting, you know, globalization, sweatshop labor and all the things that the World Bank and IMF represented to them. And, you know, as somebody who was fairly conscious as a student of history and as, you know, somebody from a former colony, that really resonated with me because a lot of the people that were affected by, you know, the IMF and the World Bank were women and children from, quote unquote, third world countries and former colonies and black and brown women like myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know. That kind of, you know, put a bug in my ear about sweatshop labor. But at the same time, like, I, I wanted to dress cute. <laughs> so it was kind of a dilemma for me. This you know, is I the love- dilemma that we face. Yes. yeah. Because I love design. I love color. I love beauty. But I don't want to exploit anybody at the same time. So I didn't know how those two things went together. But either way, um, didn't want to be involved in the fashion industry at all. So just kind of hung up that dream Didn't go to the third class, and that was it. Um, Didn't think about the fashion industry for over a decade. Um, Eventually left that job. I got other jobs in different fields. I worked in nonprofit communications. Um, I eventually went to grad school for media studies, which was mm, about 80% a fear-based decision on my part. (laughs) But um, I did learn Photoshop. So that was probably the most valuable thing I got out of that experience.
0: Did you know at that point yet that there was a different way to pursue fashion, a more ethical way?
2: Um, I wasn't thinking about fashion at all okay. at that point. I was pursuing actually documentary filmmaking because mm. um, it was, uh, I felt like it really married, you know, my passions and my background in history and English. So went to grad school I was underemployed for about a year after school until I finally got what I thought was my dream job at an Emmy-winning PBS show. I was psyched. You know, hundreds of applicants had applied for the job and they picked me and I just knew, like, this was it. You know, this was my ticket to the rest of my life working, you know, in in public television. Um, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) As we sometimes are, right? The dream jobs...
0: As I was many, many times.
2: Yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) So um, that didn't work out. I actually, I still don't know all the circumstances, but after a few months of that job, I get let go. Um, Oh, man. Something happens, like a package that's supposed to be delivered doesn't get delivered. I still to this day feel like I was thrown on the bus, under the bus by somebody more senior than me. But either way, um, I get let go. So I'm already dejected and kind of depressed. And then when I get home to my Brooklyn apartment, there's an eviction notice on my door. Because like I said, I was still, I had just gotten a steady job. You know, I was catching up on rent for the past year. But um, my landlords did not give me (laughs) that grace (laughs) to catch up. So that was a double whammy, you know, getting fired and almost evicted in the same day was devastating to me. So I knew that that was a sign, you know, it was time for a change. Um, eventually, ended up moving back to Atlanta, which is where my immediate family lives, which was super depressing for me because I moving never moving back home in with family. I was... Yes, I was moving back home with my parents for the first time in my adult life you know, love my family to death, but it was an adjustment, let's say. Yes. Been there, that that, that humbling, move back in. Exactly. Extremely humbling. And also just the um, despondency of having your dreams crushed, Mm -hmm. you know, and not knowing what to do next. So um, after I moved back to Atlanta, I got some temp jobs back to back. I It had taken about two years for me to find a quote unquote real job. And during that time, I was just like, okay, God, like, what's really going on? (laughs) Like, this is not working for me. I don't care what happens. I don't care what you do. I just want something new. That's what I kept saying. Like, I want something new. Yes. So one day I go to this networking event and I meet this woman who is an entrepreneur herself. She's an HR consultant and, you know, she, she gave some tips at this talk and it was really helpful. So I was like, you know, let me go to her website and try to find her email address so I can send her a thank you note, go to her website and it's riddled with syntax errors, (laughs) grammatical errors. And, you know, to my English major self, you know, I'm cringing on the inside. So <laughs> I email her and I tell her, hey, you know, thank you for your talk. It was really helpful. And, oh, I'm starting my own business doing marketing communications and copywriting. And I would love to rewrite your site for free. I didn't know where that came from. <laughs> um, I didn't know I was starting my own business until the words <laughs> came out of my mouth. Wait, <laughs> so say I'm that like, again. Say that again. am <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, wait, what? I'm starting a business? Okay. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm starting a business now. Um, so she was my first client, um, rewrote her site for free. She, she loved the content. And I ended up doing other projects with her while I was working with these temp jobs. So I'm like, okay, God, thank you. That's something kind of new, but um, it's still not the dream. I don't know what the dream is, but it, this is not it. And I'm like, hey, I need a name for the company. And I was racking my brain trying to think of companies, of company names, but just couldn't come up with anything. So here's where the story gets kind of weird and woo-woo and supernatural. Hmm. So I have a dream one night, and I don't remember anything else in the dream except that there was a kid on a skateboard, and he skated up to me, and he whispered in my ear, and he says, let's start a movement called KinoType." And I was like, what? And I had never heard that word before. And, you know, like I said, I was an English major and it was a literary term, but I had never heard it before. So I see the actual word spelled out in my dream. It's K-E-N-O-T-Y-P-E. So I wake up and I'm kind of weirded out, but I look up the word and I'm kind of blown away (laughs) by what I see when I Google it. So the literal definition of the word is a new form or a new imprint. But what it really means is um, a kinotype is something that when it comes into existence, it's something that's never existed before on Earth. But once it comes into existence, it changes the whole game. Like it revolutionizes everything. Wow. So like a television would be an example of a kinotype okay. or an automobile. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, I was reading this at my little cubicle at my temp job and like tears streamed down my face because I was asking for something new. Again, didn't have a clear picture of what it was, but I knew whatever I was going to do was going to be huge. So bought the domain name, you know, type.com <laughs> and just kind of sat on it for a while. Um, eventually got a real full-time job with benefits at, um, A a major global professional services firm, let's say that, but you've heard of them too. (laughs) 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 There's a lot of this in my story. um...
0: A lot. But you know what I really like here, though? I just want to stop you for a second Uh that you you recognize that, hey, this is going to change the game. This is going to be big. And you also buy the domain, even when you didn't Mm -hmm. know what exactly it should be. You at least took that next step, which is like, this has come to me by that domain name. So, so
2: then what happened? So what happened was I get the job at the professional services firm and I'm, you know, very grateful to finally have a full-time job with, you know, benefits and health insurance, but I don't particularly love the work. It's a very conservative environment. It's kind of stuffy. Very male dominated. It's basically like an 80s movie. <laughs> you know, any any 80s movie about business, like Bright Lights, Big City, anything like that. That's what it felt like. It was so conservative that the women had to wear pantyhose, hmm. which, you know, bonus for me because I got a lot of cardstock out of that. But um, while I'm at that job. You know, my goal is to kind of build the kinotype on the side, you know, build the writing and copywriting communications business on the side while I'm working this job. Um, ended up working there for about four years until one day it just got kind of unbearable and uncomfortable. Um, I didn't like the work, but um, that direct deposit <laughs> biweekly is addictive. And the idea of not having that kept me at that job much longer than I needed to be. Uh, I finally left. I remember it was on my birthday. It was a Friday afternoon. And I had had a run in with um, one of the senior people in my department. And I was just like, you know what? I'm done. So that Friday, I left the office, wrote my letter of resignation over the weekend, submitted it. And that was it. And you Um, never came back never came back, I wow. looked back. Um, granted, I did not have much of a plan <laughs> for what to do. <laughs> After I left, I just knew I had to leave. Um, thankfully, I got a contract position um, at the Boys and Girls Club headquarters here in Atlanta about two weeks later. So I was working there only three days a week, which was perfect for me because it gave me time to kind of, really think and strategize and explore about what I really wanted while still making enough to cover my bills. So did you, you start know.
0: side hustling then? Did you like, was kenotype type something where you were providing services?
2: Uh, I was providing services. So at the Boys and Girls Club headquarters, I was a writer and an editor and I was okay. a contractor. So I kind of consider that a keynote type client. Uh-huh. Um, I also did, you know, like resumes, video scripts, things like that for other small businesses. And I did that for about three and a half years. And during that time, um, I really started exploring, the the fashion stuff started coming back up again, but um, not because I had intentionally tried to explore it, but it was kind of being thrust in my face again through weird supernatural experiences (laughs) once again. I can't remember them all because there were so many, but I think the first one was, I went to this church one day. I had never been there and this woman came up and she started praying for me. And at the end of the prayer, she told me that God had given me the gift of creativity. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, well, I'm like, I'm I'm a writer, you know, I'm pretty creative. So that makes sense. But she doesn't say anything about writing. She says in the area of fashion. And I was like, okay, okay again, had completely forgotten about the FIT class. Didn't even remember that that was an experience that I'd had. But she said I had creativity in the area of fashion and I was going to be very successful at it. And, you know, like God would use my gift to bring finances in the kingdom and to bless people and to help people. And again, none of that resonated with me at all. I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> and just kind of I was like, whatever, crazy Thank lady. you, kindly. Right? Yeah, yeah. So probably a few months after that incident, an acquaintance stops me in my tracks and she's like, you know what? Every time I look at you, I just see fashion. And I'm like, okay, I'm wearing like jeans and a t-shirt right now. I'm not sure what you're seeing that's so fashionable. But then she asks me, do you sew or do you do crafts or anything like that? I'm like, no. So then she says, you should look into that because I really think there's something there for you. Again, I'm like, okay, thanks. Bye doesn't resonate with me at all. Finally, um, I take this very non-traditional art class. Um, It's not an art instruction class. It's more about, you know, exploring your heart as an artist and the purpose of creativity and all this woo-woo super spiritual stuff, you know, (laughs) which which was exactly what I needed at the time. But something happened that was pretty pivotal to my journey. One of my classmates looks at me one day and she's like, she's like, I think there's a dream that you had a long time ago that you put down because you never thought you could do it. But I feel like God's telling you to pick it back up again because he wants to make it happen. So I'm like, OK, that this person, did they just say that out of the blue? Out of, you, the blue wow. out of the blue. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, um, I've picked up a lot of things. So that could literally be anything again wasn't even thinking in terms of fashion. But I, you know, these things had happened enough where I started to try to connect the dots. And um, I was getting on a flight. It was my very first trip to Africa. I was going to Tanzania and the Delta agent looks at my passport. Then she looks back at me. Then she looks at my passport again. And she says, your name sounds like a clothing line. So I kind of laugh it off and go about my business. But inside I'm freaked out. I'm like, what is this? There, there, there's there's <laughs> something cool. Yeah, I'm very dense. <laughs> very hard-headed. <laughs> so, so it happened over and over again over the course of maybe three and a half, four years mm-hmm. until I finally started paying attention. Um, also started finding out about ethical fashion during this time. So I knew that there were brands that did not exploit people and did not do terrible things to the environment which, you know, was very heartening at the time. But when I would look at the clothes that most of these brands produced, they were kind of granola, <laughs> you know? They were kind of mm-hmm. plain. They looked like they were made of hemp. It just was not fly, you know? But I, w- I appreciated that they existed. Right. And then when you started making plans
0: towards fashion again, mm-hmm. did you have a specific lane in mind? For example, um, did you have home decor as the first target? And if so, Why?
2: All I knew was that I wanted to put my print on products. Fashion was always my first love. It was the end game for me, but I knew I knew nothing about the industry. With home decor, you don't have to worry about sizing. You don't have to worry about fit. You don't have to worry about how the fabric drapes on a human body. So I decided to go with a throw pillow (laughs) as the first project I produced because it's literally a square Um, it's a great canvas for my designs and it was just something to put out on the market to really kind of test it and to see if my prints resonated with people.
0: Where did you get the idea for your prints at this point? Did you go back and learn some more about design or was it just
2: coming to you? Um, I did not learn anything about design (laughs) formally. I always doodled. Like even when I was at these corporate jobs, you know, I would be in meetings and people would think I was taking copious notes, but I really (laughs) had legal pads (laughs) just full of these elaborate doodles. Most of which I've thrown away at this point. I really wish I had kept them, but it's just what I did. And, um, you know, during this period of enlightenment, (laughs) me actually paying attention to the signs, I would go into Target or any other department store and I would see clothing or greeting cards or just other consumer products. And I would notice that the designs on those products looked like stuff that I doodled. So I'm like, how do people get artwork onto product? So I started doing my research, um, started going to trade shows and I found out that there was something called surface pattern design, which is what I had been doing all along, (laughs) but just didn't know it and I kind of went from
0: there. Hey guys, it's Nicaela here with a quick word from our sponsors. So the number one question I get about side hustling is how do I get started? And the other day I decided to take inventory of what I was doing in my early days of side hustling. How did I get started with Side Hustle Pro? And the biggest thing that stood out to me is that I was always investing in skill and personal development, and I like to do just in time learning. So. When I was ready to do something new or try something else, I would invest in a class to learn that skill and then practice implementing it. So the rest of my development and learning came from my actual experience. So I highly recommend you do the same. What is it that you wanna do? Do you wanna finally put up your website? Then head over to Skillshare and take a class on putting up your website. Do you want to get started with social media and you're not sure how to start? Head over to Skillshare and start taking some classes. Skillshare is so great because it's an online learning community. It has over 25,000 classes in anything you can think of from photography to entrepreneurship, even podcasting. And right now they are offering a special offer just for Side Hustle Pro listeners you can get two months of unlimited access to Skillshare for free. Imagine what you can do in two months, how many classes you can take. But remember to do the implementation piece, all right? So head over to Skillshare.com slash SideHustlePro. That's Skillshare.com slash SideHustlePro to get started with your two free months. And one more time, that's Skillshare.com slash SideHustlePro. Story time. Let me tell you about the first time I had to send an invoice to a client. It was back in 2011. I was doing some social media freelance work for a major brand, and when it was time to get paid, they told me to just invoice them. I was racking my brain like, how do I send an invoice? How does this process work? Then I discovered FreshBooks. I signed up for an account, created my very first invoice, sent it over to the client, and they paid it immediately. The whole thing was seamless. And I also remember feeling super proud because I look professional and that's what I want. That's why I highly recommend FreshBooks for my fellow side hustlers. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, it's intuitive, and it keeps you way more organized than anything you try to do on your own. FreshBooks lets you create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. Plus, you can file expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn accounting. Try it free for 30 days, no catch and no credit card required. Just go to FreshBooks.com slash Side Hustle Pro and enter Side Hustle Pro in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that's FreshBooks.com slash Side Hustle Pro and tell them Side Hustle Pro sent you. Can you break down a little more what surface pattern design is and then how did you go about actually purchasing materials and putting your print on
2: products? Sure. So Anything you see, any consumer product, whether it be a piece of clothing, wallpaper, a dinner plate, anything that has a print or design on it, someone had to create that design. And that person is called a surface pattern designer. So they create artwork specifically to put on the surface of products to adorn them and to make them more commercially viable. So that's what I had been doing all along. As far as purchasing the materials to make my first product. That was very much trial and error. I knew that I wanted to do something that was sustainable and ethically made. Mm -hmm. So I started out, I sourced some organic cotton fabric from a supplier. I think they were based in Texas and did some Google research and I found a printer that can actually print on our organic cotton fabric and they were located in New Orleans. So I had the fabric shipped from Texas to the small textile printer in New Orleans. Then I had it shipped to me in Atlanta (laughs) and I worked with a local seamstress who would cut and sew the fabric into pillows. And the inserts of the pillows, I sourced those from another company. I think it was based in Kentucky or somewhere. But the pillows, they're super plush, but they're actually made of um, recycled plastic bottles. What? Which That is yes, awesome. <laughs> which people are very shocked by because they're so soft and they feel like yes. down feathers. But So I was committed to you know, using all these recycled materials. Of course, my supply chain was very clunky and very expensive <laughs> at the time. So um, I eventually found a factory that could be sort of a one-stop shop and I worked with them for a while and they had very low minimums. So okay. So did you still for- have to send, like get other companies to send them the materials? Uh, no, they had the materials, they had the um, printing facilities and they sewed everything.
0: Even this, in the sustainable way that you preferred? Mm-hmm. That's yep. cool. And, you know, one thing that stands out to me about your story is you didn't necessarily know how to do everything, but in researching, you knew Mm -hmm. that, hey, I've been doing surface design. Is that what it's called? Surface Mm -hmm. pattern design. Surface
2: pattern design. Surface pattern
0: design. Um, I don't, I'm not a seamstress. I'm going to find that person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, you weren't trying to do it all, but you knew that you were going to put together this final product, this vision belonged to you. So then how did you start to sell? How did you market these products and get people to start buying
2: these products? How did I? Um, So I had a, um, I already had a mailing list from working um, on KinoType for a few years. I had kind of garnered a customer base. Of course, they did not know I designed. I didn't even know I designed at the time. But um, when I debuted my website and had my first pop-up shop at West Elm, I sent out this email blast to my whole list, to, to, you know, all my Facebook friends, to basically everybody I knew and everybody in my network and told them what I was doing, showed them pictures of my website and a bunch of people that I hadn't seen in years showed up at my first pop-up shop. And that's kind of how it got started.
0: Now, how did you land a pop-up at West Elm? Is that easy to do? Do you just email them and ask to do it? It's very easy. I, I didn't
2: think it was at the time, but um, <laughs> it's very easy. Um, so West Elm, a, a great thing about them is that they really advocate for local designers and each store kind of operates differently. So I basically just went up to the store and I was like, Hey, I noticed that you have a local section, you know, with products made from local designers. How can I get in on this? And they told me about, you know, their pop-up shop program. You just um, tell them when you want to do it. They give you space in the store. So for four or five hours, you set up shop in the store. You can use their fixture fixtures. You can use any of their materials and you just sell your product. They don't ask for any of the proceeds. They don't want a percentage. They just give you space to do what you want to do.
0: Love it. So when did you start to take this side hustle seriously in terms of, I, I see this as a larger business and mm-hmm. um, I'm plotting revenue goals and I'm building this into a business. And, and what did you do then?
2: Um, I took it seriously from day one, not because I'm so driven or serious, but because, you know, all the clues that I had been given and all the really divine downloads that I had been given and just the grand vision of my company as being something bigger than myself, I felt like a mandate to do it. Even when I didn't feel like doing it, even when I didn't want to do the work, I felt compelled to do it.
0: And was it easy to keep overhead low, with I mean, you started out. You said your supply chain was very expensive, but then you found mm-hmm. the factory. Did your margins increase after that?
2: Um, they increased a little. A funny thing about throw pillows, home <laughs> <on> decor <laughs> products, <laughs> is that people love them. People give you a lot of likes on Facebook. They, you know, share your page, but. They don't buy them as much as they like them. <laughs> See, let's talk about it. Let's talk yes. about
0: likes versus customers.
2: Girl. Okay. So, yes. So, so yeah. Um, when I would have live events like pop-ups, they would do pretty well. I would have a good turnout. But the web sales were not good at all until one day I had a pop-up at West Elm. It was around the holidays. And it kind of made me shift the way I thought about how I marketed the home decor. So I had sold nothing all day. We had been in the store for about four or five hours and it was pretty depressing. <laughs> but then um, one of the guys who worked at the store who was an interior de- designer himself, you know, he kind of looked at the pillows and was like, hey, I have a client that wants something exactly like this and we don't have anything in the store. So you know, I'll take these five. And, you know, I hadn't sold anything in one, in a whole day, but in one fell swoop, I sold five pillows to an interior designer. So that really forced me to target the interior designer community more. They have a greater appreciation for products that are sustainably made and just special. So when you started working with interior designers, um, how did
0: that go? Was that better volume of purchases each and every month?
2: Uh, It was better volume. It was still kind of slow going in the beginning just because that wasn't my world. And I'm still building a network of interior designers. I don't really know much about the field except, you know, I like cute stuff in my house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it definitely did increase the volume. Another thing which I've started doing recently they would like the pillow or whatever item I was selling. They're like, oh, this print is great. Can I have it in a table runner or a napkin? So I actually started doing more custom projects for interior designers. Ah. So that was another um, stream of income that I'm just developing now. And are you still side hustling at this point? Uh, yes, but even that is... um. A pretty circuitous story
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would love to know because it's like okay Rochelle I want you in the side hustle spotlight guest chair but this seems from the outside looking in self-sustaining right it's like you have this amazing product and how are you doing this how are you juggling your full-time role and also side hustling so what is your full-time role and
2: how are you able to juggle So my full-time role, um, I started a job in December of 2014, which is around the same time that I started my company. And I knew that once I had a somewhat clear vision of what I wanted to do as far as surface pattern design, I knew I would need capital to make that happen. So that's why I went back to working full-time instead of doing keynote type. And doing freelance work. So started a contract position and was there for about four years at this major corporation that's based here in Atlanta, which I won't name again. (laughs) (laughs) But um, great company. Uh, Again, the job was not anything I was interested in long-term, but it was, you know, it sustained me while I was building my business. Yes. So I would say it was about Thanksgiving of 2017, my boss comes up to me and she's like, hey, I have great news. Even though you've been contracting here for nearly four years, you know, we finally have funding to make your job a full-time role. Of course, I would have had to interview for the role. And with this company, um, the interview process is notoriously protracted and very, almost, I want to say intrusive, like they interview members of your family. Oh, um, I know the company you're talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they um, they don't just call your references to check yeah. if you work there. They talk to them for an hour. And- you know, people don't quit there. Like once you start working there, it's kind of a lifetime commitment. It's kind of like a family atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, this is a great job for somebody else. (laughs) I know this is not what I want to commit to long-term. So do I really want to go through that whole process just for something that I'm eventually going to leave? So I was like, you know what, maybe it's time to go. I was making income for my business. It wasn't you know, where I wanted it to be, but I figured if I had, you know, a full-time schedule to work on my business, I could actually make it grow. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's time to take the leap. So end up training my replacement. Um, I had a little bit of savings. So at the end of June of 2018, I left. Okay. So worked on my own for a few months and I was getting opportunities but they weren't really what I wanted. So I kind of had to step back. And to me, the whole purpose of going into business for myself was to work on the kind of projects I want to work on and work with the clientele I want to work with and not just to make money. And that's what I felt like I was doing because I live in Atlanta, which is the reality show central. So (laughs) there are a lot of people who, you know, maybe they were on a show for a while and they had their 15 minutes of fame and they want to extend it by creating their own products and extending their personal brands. So those are the kind of people I was working with. And, you know, it was great at first. They enlisted my services because they liked my aesthetic and thought I had design expertise. But in the end, the projects kind of fizzled out and they ended up doing what they wanted to do anyway. And I was like, "Mm, I didn't really enjoy that. And if I'm going to do something I don't really enjoy, I might as well be getting a steady paycheck and benefits from it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> eventually while I'm still building my business and yes. you know slowly working my way out of corporate America, so fast forward to almost a year later, my old job calls me back and they're like, "Hey, we have a project that we would love you to work on and we know you have your business, so, you know, can you come back 4 days a week?" So I was able to negotiate you know, a four day a week schedule, but still making five day a week money, thankfully. Um, So I'm doing that now, at least temporarily until the end of this year. So I'm very grateful for that. And what you said about, you know, when you look
0: up and you realize that you are working for yourself, but you're not able to do it the way you want to. Mm -hmm. That is such a good point, because I think when you leave, And there's not necessarily a strong plan there. You do find yourself in situations where you're doing things for money that you Mm -hmm. don't want to do. And, you know, let's face it, as an entrepreneur, you still do have your clients as a boss, right? That's kind of a semi-boss, but you want to make sure you enjoy that process and that you can choose those clients. So giving yourself that that room and having that capital frees you up from having to make those tough decisions of working and doing things you don't want to do for money.
3: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, and when we keep them bottled up, it affects us negatively. I have found that therapy has been a safe space to get things off my chest. I had my daughter last August, and by January, I hit up my therapist like, let's go ahead and set up this monthly session. Therapy has been so helpful for me in setting boundaries, and it just empowers me to be the best version of myself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, this is your sign to go ahead and do it and give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com HustlePro today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HustlePro. So now what inspired the pivot from home decor solely into
2: activewear? So clothing was always kind of the end game for me. I just needed time to learn about how that worked. So I had been, you know, kind of doing research the whole time about how to produce a clothing line, what I wanted to come out with first. And I'd say it was about 3 years ago a friend came to me and she was like, "Hey, I want to do a activewear line, but I want to use Ankara prints. So she wanted to use, you know, traditional African fabric designs on workout clothes. And she wasn't asking me to partner with her anything. She was just kind of coming to me for advice on how to get a consumer product made. So, you know, told her what I knew. Um, She found a print that she liked that she wanted to have made into, you know, some sports bras and leggings. And I was like, okay, so do you own the copyright to it? She was like, huh? I was like, you know, you can't use that if you don't own it. (laughs) So she was like, oh. She's like, well, can you make something for me? (laughs) Like, basically, she wanted me to sort of recreate these traditional African prints. But, you know, she wanted to have the rights to use them. (laughs) Uh, So I was like, okay, I guess I can do that. Um, So as I was researching how to do that for her, I found a mock-up template. And I had had these prints that I had designed for years because I'm just constantly designing. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, uh, let me use these just as an example, just as a test to see how you know, the scale and the color would look on these particular pair of pants. So I made some mock-ups with my prints. I was like, hey, these look kind of (laughs) good, you know, like I that I could sell these. So I start um, showing them to a few people and they're like, hey, I think this is going to be a hit. I even showed it to my dad, who is by no means an expert on women's fashion <laughs> at all. I but love was like, that hey. with the support of dad. <laughs> yeah, but he was like, hey, these are these are good. These might be a hit. I was like, okay. Um, by that point, my friend, who's kind of a serial entrepreneur herself, had kind of gone off and done her own thing, uh, wasn't even doing the active wear anymore. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to put them out. So I found a print-on-demand manufacturer um, based in California, and chose six of my prints that I had been kind of sitting on for years and years. What made you decide on six? Cause I couldn't do 12. <laughs> <laughs> so the manufacturer uh, or the, the print
0: on demand kind of made
2: you narrow it down. Uh, no, not really. I could have done an unlimited amount of prints, but I really wanted it to be a cohesive collection. Okay. And I kind of did my own mini focus groups, just kind of sending it to friends and family members, seeing which ones resonated most with them. And I picked six of the most popular ones.
0: So can you share a little bit about the actual process of making this? I know you mentioned before that at first you were kind of intimidated by clothing because of the sizing process. So mm-hmm. what one made you push through that mental block, and how are you able to figure out sizing to do this active work collection?
2: So the beauty of using a print-on-demand manufacturer and also the beauty of using very, you know, stretchy yoga pants material is that it's um, very flexible and very forgiving. So they already have the sizes kind of pre-planned. There's already a size chart there. The sizes go anywhere from extra small to 6X. And as long as you know your measurements, you know your size. And all I really have to do is provide the print.
0: Oh, I love that. And what about pricing? How did you determine that? Um, Definitely
2: um, did some market research. So I looked at similar companies and what they were pricing at. Um, I also figured in the fact that, you know, my work is pretty unique. It's pretty niche. Um, You know, these are my original prints and there is value in that. Because you're not just, you know, wearing a pair of yoga pants. You're wearing a piece of art. Right. So I figured that into the pricing as well. And I tried to make it competitive while still, you know, placing value on my work. Yes.
0: Hey, you guys, when you see these prints, you are just going to die. I mean, she <laughs> Rochelle posted them in the group. And a Normal, in my Sign Hustle Pro Facebook community, it was like a normal thread. I think maybe like a feature Friday or, you know, what are you guys up to? And when she posted... First of all, I think you posted without sharing the link at first. And everybody was like, drop the link, sis. <laughs> and then as soon as you did and that image populated, I was like, what? Yes, need to know about this and need to purchase. So now, how are you? Are you just going around and dropping the, this link and then, you know, it speaks <laughs> for itself? Or how, what is your approach to marketing now? Because you're in a completely
2: different lane. I am. And it's it's exciting. So. Um, I just had my photo shoot, I think about a month ago. So um posted those pictures on my Instagram and you know th- they did really well. I'm I soft launched it, so I haven't even officially launched yet. I'm having my official launch event in um August okay. here in Atlanta. So it's gonna be a whole production. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna have models, I'm gonna be talking about my products, there'll be a and day. But um, I've mostly been marketing online and I'm going to be doing a lot more paid social just to get the products out there.
0: And is there anything that surprised you so far about the process of being an active wear collection designer? Hmm.
2: I was surprised at how... I wasn't surprised at how well it resonated with people, but I was surprised that the response that I got for the activewear was so much greater than anything I had made <laughs> in previous years. Mm. Like, I probably got more sales in activewear in a week than I had gotten in, you know, maybe a few months of doing home decor.
0: Wow. And what do you attribute that to? I mean, I I know what I attribute it to, but (laughs) what are your thoughts? I'm curious.
2: Um, Well, A, I think people in general care more about what they wear than what they have in their homes. (laughs) Um, I also think um, active wear is, um, you know, it's something that you, if you work out regularly, or even if you don't, you can wear all the time. You may buy a throw pillow, you know, once in a while here and there, but you can literally wear active wear every day if you wanted to. I think partially I can also attribute it to just the vibrancy of the designs, you know. I don't I haven't seen a whole lot out there on the market. Most active wear is kind of drab or um solid colors. So it really is something new and fresh that's not often seen in that lane. Absolutely. And for those who are like you and who
0: are creative and have a design mind, but really don't know about that design to product process, um, what Mm -hmm. would you recommend as far as, you know, should they even test things out on like a Teespring before they go and build their website and actually start selling through their website? You know, knowing now what you know, what would you tell someone who is like maybe four years behind you?
2: Mm -hmm. I would absolutely recommend that. Um, The less money you can spend up front (laughs) to test products, the better. Um, That's a lesson I learned the hard way from just, you know, producing throw pillows. But yeah, test the market as much as possible. Use as many free resources, as many um, print on demand resources as possible and see if it resonates. And if so, then, you know, make a whole bunch of products. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what do you hope for Rochelle Porter Designs to become? Hmm. So the grand vision is, you know, not just to make a bunch of cute stuff, but I really see this as a calling and I see just the way I got into this industry in the first place is unique. And I really feel that part of my purpose is to change the way the global manufacturing industry works. So I want to create products that, you know, yes, are beautiful, are cute, you know, that bring joy to people. But I also want to prove through the numbers, through sales, that it is possible to produce a brand ethically and sustainably and honor the people and the planet that helps you make the product while still making sales and having a successful business.
0: Exactly. And another thing that you are doing is the size inclusivity. You know, people, I think brands act like, oh no, we couldn't possibly, sorry, we ran out of fabric. There's just, there's no more. We just can't provide any other sizes. Um, Why is that so important to you? And, you know, how do you go about making sure that you accommodate as many sizes as possible?
2: Okay. So, as somebody who has been a couple of different sizes (laughs) in my life, uh, I know that, it's important for women, regardless of size, to feel great in what they wear and to feel beautiful and feel amazing. And that actually motivates you to work out more and get healthier. Uh, I think the average American woman is a size 14. So for that to be considered plus size is a little weird. So i I'm like, don't y'all wanna make money if you're a fashion <laughs> brand? <laughs> like, don't you want to appeal yeah. to as many women as possible? So um, that was really important to me, that anybody of any size could wear my products and feel great and confident in them.
0: Love that. And you're so right. I mean, I know I feel better about myself and I want to go to the gym when I have a cute outfit. I don't know what that is. I can't. I can't tell you the science behind yeah. it, but that's just facts. OK, it, it is. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. So what's next for you and your side hustle? Do you have a timeline in mind of how long you'll do this or um, mm-hmm. are you just kind of kind of see
2: where it takes you? So um, my contract with my current company ends at the end of this year. So um, I'm kind of using that as an arbitrary deadline. <laughs> <to> <laughs> really? I mean, it may happen. It may not. But that's my goal. And I'm really, you know, trying to market the activewear as much as possible, um, especially around the holidays. You know, I want to market all my product lines well around then and just really, um, you know, build up my brand recognition, build up my capital Mm -hmm. and hopefully be ready to leave corporate America.
0: And what's been your experience on the revenue side? Because I think sometimes when we do have that job, we mm-hmm. we get a little comfortable in, OK, this is not making money, but that's OK because mm-hmm. I have my job. So what's been your experience with making and, and growing and being intentional about increasing your revenue so that it can replace your full time income eventually?
2: Um, yeah, I've definitely fallen into that comfortability trap. Um, you know, so I've had ebbs and flows. Sometimes I do well, sometimes I don't with the home decor and the throw pillows. But um, given that I do have somewhat of a deadline now and I've actually, I feel like I'm finding my sweet spot with the active wear and the clothing. I have a lot of hope for that aspect of my business. So it's more, I, I see an end in sight of the side hustle. And my revenue is in the past few months, it's been, I I would say it's about three times what it's been in the past three years.
0: Yes, I like to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Well, I'm personally very excited and I find myself like some of my um, listeners tell me that they're always like, this podcast makes them shop, but it's because... (laughs) One, I feel like sometimes I interview people and people view it as an endorsement. So I want to, you know, I really only am going to interview people who, uh, whose products I think are just dope. So you guys, oh, you're thanks. welcome. Now, <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to jump into the lightning round. You know the deal. You just answer the very first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. Number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your side hustle that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience?
2: Uh, the whole Google suite. So Google Docs, Google Sheets, Google Photos. I use those religiously. All right.
0: Number two, what's been the best business book that you've read this year? Profit First by Ooh. Mike Mcallowitz, I
2: think is his name.
0: Okay. Number three, who is a Black woman side hustler that motivates you to keep on hustling and keep going and Why?
2: Oh, I don't know if I'd call her a side hustle, but hands down, um, Bozema St. John, who's the CMO of William Morris Endeavor. She's like my bestie and my mentor in my head. (laughs) I love how unapologetically herself she is while navigating these, you know, traditional corporate spaces.
0: Yes. Number four, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your side hustle? Uh,
2: prayer, meditation, journaling, all three together.
0: And finally, number five, what is your parting advice for fellow side hustlers who may not see the vision yet, don't know how they're (laughs) going to make it and just need to be inspired to keep going? Mm, That's a good question.
2: Um, I would say if you're stuck Don't be afraid to stop everything and take a step back to reevaluate where you are. Maybe you just need to wait it out. Maybe you need to change course, or maybe you need to stop what you're doing altogether. And maybe you don't really want to be an entrepreneur. Um, The beauty of a side hustle is, is that you have income coming in. So even if your side hustle isn't profitable, you have the time and the space to really experiment and think about what you want your next move to be. Love that. So now where can people connect with you after the show? So they can connect with me on my website, RochellePorter.com. And on Instagram, I'm at roporterdesign. Porter Design. That's R-O-P-O-R-T-E-R Design. All right. So thank you so
0: much for joining us in the guest chair, Rochelle. There you have it, guys. Head over to sidehousepro.co slash Rochelle to get all of the show notes from this episode, including the helpful links and resources that Rochelle mentioned. Thanks so much again and talk to you next week. Hey, hey, thanks for listening. Now, stay connected in between episodes by texting Side Hustle Pro to 44222. You'll get my weekly Six Bullet Saturday newsletters where I share what I'm up to, what I'm reading, my business tip of the week, and resources to help you grow your side hustle. And I'm working behind the scenes on some live events, which my email list will get access to first. So make sure you're in the loop. Text Side Hustle Pro to 44222 or visit sidehustlepro.co/sbs.